We need models, don't we? Someone has to chart for us, show us the path, show us the way to go. And models can be so useful in no matter what situation really you are in your life. Whether it's the very mundane things, you might watch on YouTube and find a video on how to prep a meal or how to fix a car or how to do some do-it-yourself project that once I get into it, I'm like, well, why didn't they show me that on the video of all the frustration because it was so hard? Oh, yeah, because they can edit it and cut out those parts. I remember now. But you get the point. It's so good even still to find somebody to take you step by step, give you a model and a track to follow. But models can do much more than simply show us a path. They can really inspire us. They can blaze a trail that we want to pursue and go after and, and imitate them and what they're doing. Maybe you know that in your own career. Maybe you had a boss who lived a certain way or did a certain thing with a, with a product or with the way he ran a business, and you wanted to, to emulate that, to follow that, to see what you could do. Models are so useful and helpful. Or maybe it's somebody you read about, again, who, who inspired you. What might the Lord do through me if I invest in such similar ways or if I was able to emulate such disciplines and so forth? What can I do? Well, as it comes to pastoral ministry for myself, one such model hangs in my study, and it's the portrait of John Calvin. And do you know what he tells me? He looks askance toward me. And by the way, he's not smiling. He never smiles at me as he stares at me on the wall. Do you know what he's telling me? He says, Rick, you will preach God's word, won't you? Because you see, that's what John Calvin did. Many of us know him for his theology that's associated with his name. But first and foremost, John Calvin, the reformer in Geneva, was an expositor of the Word of God. In a little over 10 years of his pulpit ministry, he preached 46 sermons from Thessalonians, 186 sermons from the Corinthian letters, another 86 sermons on the pastoral letters, and 43 sermons from Galatians, and then another 48 sermons on Ephesians. Oh, and that was just on a Sunday morning. Because you see, he preached almost every day of the week. He came either with his Greek or Hebrew Bible into the pulpit, opened it up without notes, and preached. And what astounds me is that we, commentators and Bible scholars and pastors, still use this commentary with benefit today. The Lord had gifted this man with such insight. But he was a relentless expositor. So when he was preaching in the New Testament on Sunday mornings, throughout the week he took an Old Testament book. And so he took the text of Job and preached it in 159 sermons, 200 sermons on Deuteronomy, 353 sermons from Isaiah, and another 123 explanations from Genesis. This man was an expositional juggernaut. He could not be stopped. And it's that example, that reminder, with that kind of frowning face on my wall, reminds me what it means to depend upon God to work through His Word. And that helps me and moves me, provides a model to be a faithful pastor. Well, Jesus, too, knows how important models are for the Christian life. And in this text, He gives us two models. He, he gives us singles and He gives us children. They provide models for us, models that we can follow to be a more faithful and useful Christian for His kingdom. That is, whether we're married or whether we're single or whether we're young or whether we're old, live like in that way with a single-minded devotion, live like a child in that kind of humility, and you are a person of the kingdom. And it's interesting because while in many cases, really both of these classes of people, singles and children, especially in an ancient context, these were the exact people you overlooked. These were people you'd say, no, they're of no influence. They have nothing to offer. And yet Jesus, and that's the theme today, he elevates singles, he elevates children as choice models to look at. He draws attention to the steps. Look at them, follow them, be like them. And in such a way, it would look like this. Be single-minded in your devotion. 
And then also be humbly dependent like a child. Here's the model provided by these two classes, singles and children. Be single-minded in your devotion and be humbly dependent like a child. So we turn then to that first one. Embrace a single-minded devotion. Embrace a single-minded devotion. We see that in verses 10 to 12. And Christ elevates singleness in a way that his culture rarely ever had. In the Jewish society, a person who was single was many times of no import. And yet we find here that whether you're single or married, a single-minded focus is exactly what we need in the kingdom of Christ. Model for us by the singles of the kingdom. So embrace and extol the single-minded devotion. Now, the disciples themselves, as we look at verse 10, they seem to be pro-singleness. But it's not so much because they're pro-singleness. They're just now anti-marriage, it seems. Look at verse 10 with me. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Now, what prompted such a negative assessment from the disciples? They'll recall what we looked at last time about how Jesus taught about marriage just before this. And he drew from Genesis, drawing it all together, and he made this conclusion. Look at verse 6 of Matthew 19. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What was the conclusion? It was this. Marriage is for keeps. Marriage is for life. It's permanent. And so the disciples, seeing that there's no way out of this, they're starting to get cold feet about this whole marriage thing if they weren't married already. And so we turn to verse 10. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Again, for the disciples, if there's no out, if there's no escape hatch, I'm not stepping into this marriage thing. I mean, what if she turns out to be a nag or I pull back the veil and I don't like what I see? Or what if she gets old or what if she gets sick? What am I supposed to do? It's the old ball and chain. No way. It's better not to marry then. Single for life. It's like they circle around. Bachelors for the rapture. Not so fast, disciples. Jesus butts in, verse 11. But Jesus said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. As if to say, okay, yes, there are some benefits to singleness, but singleness is not for everybody. And as we're talking over the long haul, over one's whole life, lifelong singleness is not for most people. We even get that from Jesus' teaching as he expounds Genesis for us. He gives us the sense most people will marry. That's by design. You were made for it. You were designed for it from the very beginning. And remember, we rehearsed this from Genesis chapter 2, how the one not good thing in the garden was that Adam was alone. And so what did God do? He met that need and he gave him a helper fit for him. He gave him a companion, a wife. So then marriage will be the course for most men and women. Again, that's by design. So catch that. That means even now, post-fall, after Genesis 3, that means even despite sin's corruption that spreads and infects everything and every relationship, and of course that means every marriage, even still, post-fall, marriage serves as a tremendous blessing and gift of God. And Paul makes this so plain in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 
as he warns them about some false teachers. We can't look at it in detail at all. We don't have the time. But there, there were some deceivers who were coming into the church and trying to forbid marriage. You know, we're heavenly citizens. We don't get involved in that earthly marriage stuff anymore. Yet Paul counters to say this in 1 Timothy 4.3, God created marriage to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Marriage is a gift. You receive it with thanksgiving and give God the glory for it even still, even with all of the faults that are there because of our sin. See, Jesus, Paul, the scriptures present marriage as a wonderful gift from God. But as we turn to our text, marriage is not the only gift that God gives. He gifts some with singleness, too. Again, verse 11 once more. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it is given. To some, that settled purpose to remain single and celibate, though it's not the norm... It's something special, indeed, given by God, the gift to be single. And then to explore who, who's received this gift of singleness, Jesus turns first to the prominent and the permanent singles of the ancient world, the eunuch. Now, eunuchs, these were men who could not and so then would not marry because something was amiss with their male body parts. Jesus lays out the two kinds of eunuchs that were typically known in the ancient world. Verse 12, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. Now this first category would be those who came out of the womb and something was malformed, something like a birth defect, such that he never develops, he never matures as a man typically does. And then the next category Jesus mentions are those who have been, you might say surgically, uh, castrated. They are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. Now, why would anyone do such a thing? That seems horrific. It seems like a really cruel punishment. Well, in some cases, that's exactly what making a eunuch was. It was a punishment. That would be a terrific, as in horrible way, to shame your enemies, those that you just conquered. Yet even still... Eunuchs many times would serve prominent roles in the society. So you might remember the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, right? He was described as a eunuch, a court official of Candace, who was the queen of the Ethiopians. He was in charge of all her treasure. And so you see, and maybe no surprise, it was common for eunuchs to be the chief attendants to queens and those of the king's harem. Because there'd be no fear of cheating or infidelity with a eunuch. So in the ancient world, though they would never marry and they would never have families of their own, they could serve special roles, often in the king's court and sometimes in the highest strata of society in the ancient times. But then Jesus turns and talks about another category of eunuch, but it's a different sort altogether. Again, continuing in verse 12, And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That is, the first two categories of eunuchs are eunuchs because of their anatomy. 
they were either born a eunuch or they were surgically made one. But this third group of eunuchs are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, the text reads. That is, they're not literal eunuchs, but they are spiritual ones. They live like eunuchs. That means they live as celibate singles for the sake of Christ's kingdom. They are putting aside marriage for the sake of making known Christ. That's what's intended. Even though some in church history have interpreted it quite literally. Rather, unfortunately, Eusebius, the ancient church historian, reports, reports that Origen, he took Jesus' words, quote, in too literal and in an extreme sense, such that Eusebius described it as Origen's daring deed, such that even if he was a hasty and young Christian, he at least showed earnestness, I'll say. But to the point, Jesus was not commending actual mutilation of the flesh. He was not advocating the marring of a physically healthy body. No more than he was literally urging folks to cut off hands and pluck out eyes to put sin to death. Remember from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. And why is that? Sin's a matter of the heart. We know this. You need spiritual heart surgery to curb your lusts, not some physical alteration. So again, this third category, they're not eunuchs because of a birth defect or because they were violated, but because they choose to live for Christ's kingdom as a single, celibate, devoted life. So though marriage is most desirable, it's a gift from God, so is singleness when it's coupled with self-control. A singleness leveraged for Jesus. And that's been the standing example in the church. Look over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Turn over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This, this is the clearest and most expansive teaching in Scripture about this matter of singleness. I say it's the standing example in the church because we have it with our own Christ that we follow. He never married. Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, was single. And he urges singleness for others too. So if you're with me there now in 1 Corinthians 7, just setting the stage for you, Paul apparently had been teaching some on singleness. And he'd also been teaching on marriage and refraining from sexual immorality. But as he taught on singleness, some had taken him the wrong way or in an extreme way. And so they had written something to Paul. And so 1 Corinthians is his response back to try and clarify things. Well, here's what they wrote. Look at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 7. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman or not to touch, literally, a woman. That was their opinion. They seemed to have had this initial conclusion that even the disciples had. Maybe it's better not to marry at all then. Well... Paul stops. You need to think a little more carefully about that. He clarifies in verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That is, it's all well and good that you want to refrain from marriage, maybe even never touch a woman again. But understand, that means you'll never have sexual relations. There will be no sanctioned outlet for those strong desires, no matter what your excuse is. And so since sex is only for marriage, no marriage means no sex of any kind. Again, no matter how strong your desires or urgings. 
Such that then, as Paul commends singleness, he commends to be like him, he concedes it's not for everybody. Look at verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 7. He says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I mean, the Bible's a plain book, isn't it? It's straightforward. It just speaks the truth. Sex is for marriage, and marriage is for sex. Now, of course, that's not all marriage is for or about. But it is for that, no doubt. And so you see, in that way, marriage or singleness proves to be a gift given by God. Look back up to verse 7. I wish that all were, Paul writes, as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So which gift do I have? Has God gifted me for marriage or for singleness? Well, of course, if you're already married, you know the answer. If that's a question to you, go back and listen to last week's sermon. What God has joined together, let no man separate. But what if you're single? Or what if you're trying to counsel someone who is single? What's the deciding factor to discern this, the answer to this question? Is it merely the presence or absence of desires for marriage and all that goes with it? And I would contend to you, no, that's not merely or the deciding factor. First, Paul talks about you can have those great desires, but are they contained by self-control? And that should be the aspiration of every single in Christian. Desires are no, you better have self-control. And there's no excuse away from that. We are called to self-control and obedience to Jesus. So it's not merely do you have desires, though, of course, that's a factor. That's what he's talking about here. But in the end, the gift of singleness really stems from a kingdom commitment. The gift of singleness stems from a kingdom commitment, a sacrifice of one good gift of God for the sake of a kingdom gospel focus over one's whole life. That's what Paul says as you turn the page in 1 Corinthians 7, as you go to verse 32. He says this, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. His focus is on what can I do for Jesus? And he has no hindrances in the way that, that divert him from this. Verse 33, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to plead his, please his wife. And worldly, not in the sense of sinful, just in the sense of it deals with the matters of this world. Verse 34 sums it up. His interests are divided. It's just very plain. When you're married, it, with, if you're gifted with the great blessing of marriage, not only is it a blessing, but it comes with responsibilities. As a husband or wife, you have to give attention. You must focus on your spouse. That's your call. As a Christian husband or wife, then you must focus on how can I please God? How can I serve Him? But how also can I serve my, my husband or my wife? In that way, your interests, your focus, just by necessity, they have to be divided. You're being pulled in different, but they're both good directions. Into good marriage purposes and good kingdom purposes. 
And it's a happy thing when a good marriage dovetails with God's kingdom purposes. And often that does happen, but not always. I mean, that's Paul's point. Your care for your spouse, your care for your home and your kids and all that goes with your family, it's going to take time, just necessarily at will, of getting, take time away from getting the gospel out beyond you and beyond your home. Married with a responsibility for others, it just makes life more complicated. You're more rooted. You're more tied down. Yes, there are many good things, but they necessarily limit your availability and opportunities for spreading the kingdom work. Okay, so are you saying then, or is Paul saying, is living as a single the best and most glorifying God way to live? Well, let's listen to Paul. Look at verse 35. He says this, I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraints upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. He makes a concession. No, being single is not the only or best way to glorify God, but neither is marriage. You can glorify God in both of those, and that should be the purpose why you pursue either one. So you see, it's not about being really single or married. It depends on what has the Lord gifted you for, what has He equipped you for, and what has He providentially put into your life. You can't ignore that. Because as we turn back then to Matthew 19, here's the thing. There's no place for like a Christian resignation to singleness. Well, ho-hum, I'm still not married I guess I just have the curse. I mean, excuse me, I'm supposed to say the blessing of singleness. I'll just find some sad hobby to entertain my free evenings with. No, not at all. If you're single, be single for the sake of the kingdom. Pour yourself out for Christ and for his kingdom. See the gospel march and move through your availability. Use those connections for his name. Give yourself with undivided attention and labor to see Christ exalted. Don't be single for the sake of, you just haven't found anyone yet. Don't be single for the sake of, you just haven't, you don't want to be tied down to anyone. Don't be single for the sake of, I want to make sure I can be able to do what I want. No, be single for the sake of his kingdom. Dive into church life. Disciple like crazy. Give generously. Serve continuously. Show this world and remind all of us that look on that there is something greater than romance. That there is an acceptance, that there is a love that's greater than anything you can find on this earth. Live so devotedly to show us that there is only one pursuit that will truly satisfy, one reward, one relationship that will never disappoint you or never leave you, not even in death, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's your groom. He's the one who loved you and gave himself for you. Such that if you live devoted to him, even in singleness, for the entirety of your life, when you come to eternity on the cusp of eternity and you look back over what by compared to eternity is a very short life, you will never regret your devotion to that groom. Not in the least. You will have missed nothing. Verse 12. 
Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. That would be a gift to you to take that up and a gift to this church. But finally, if you are married, evidently singleness isn't your gift. You have another gift. But what can we take from this? Is that even our earthly marriages, as permanent as they are, they're only permanent in this life. All of them end. Till death do us part, right? They're not ultimate. They're not forever. Only your union to Christ is. He is your groom. He is your desire. He is your chief. He is the one you live for. And so center your focus and the attention of the focus of your spouse on Him. Direct attention to Him. Double up and double down together to live united in your marriage to exalt and magnify the name of Jesus. And as marrieds, you have a unique opportunity to leverage your different gifts, to complement one another, to get at places and to minister in ways you could never do by yourself. Do it. That's what your marriage is for. It's not merely about personal satisfaction or how can I make myself feel better or I just don't want to be lonely. No, you're leveraging one another to exalt and advance the kingdom. Why? Because your union in Christ will not be temporary. Rather, what's going to be happening, even for an eternity, you will be uncovering the depth and devotion of this one who loved you and gave himself for you, this one who will never leave you or forsake you, even in death, because he conquered it. Take up that single-minded devotion. Married or single. The next model we have is that we turn to children. Let's look at verses 13 to 15, back to Matthew 19. Here with children, we find a model for the Christian life, a model of humility and dependence. And so Matthew turns our attention to children, again, taking another aspect of family life here, uh, as we are brought to them as parents are bringing children to Jesus. And they're asking if Jesus would see them and pray for them and bless these children. Verse 13, then children were brought to him that he may lay his hands on them and pray. But then. The disciples rebuked the people. I'm like, whoa, dude, seriously? Rebuke these people holding these cute little kids? That word rebuke is pretty strong, too. It's the same word that Jesus used when he calmed the seas. And these sweet folks are trying to bring these cute, joyful little kids, and the disciples intervene and just turn them all away. As if to say, listen, I'm sure you understand, but Jesus just doesn't have time for you. I mean, this is the Messiah. He's the King of Kings. He's pretty busy with important stuff. I'm sure you understand. See, we're on our way to Jerusalem to go see like the kings and priests and stuff so we can show them their place and so that we can get this whole kingdom going in the world thing. I'm sorry, Jesus just doesn't have time for little people like you. Of course, the disciples think they're doing Jesus a favor. They're running interference for him so he doesn't get too tired or get distracted. And imagine if he was praying for these kids and a real important, like the high priest came by and he was going to hear Jesus, but got turned away. Oh, what would happen then? I mean, Jesus is important, isn't he? He had much to do, for sure. 
But understand, what was he there to do? People, even little children, are the very ones he came for. That was his work to do. Such that Jesus can't stand to see these little children being turned away. Look at verse 14. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. And I love it. When Mark recounts this event in his gospel, he notes Jesus' attitude. Listen to this. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. You want to make Jesus angry? Keep, keep people from trying to get to him. That'll make Jesus angry, especially if the people you're keeping out from him are ones that the society doesn't think too highly of. You may think you're important. You may think, I got a lot of important things to do. I I got stuff I must do. I got to get this done. I I don't really have time for lesser people, lesser things. Well, note this. Jesus made sure he had time for kids. He made sure he had time. He wasn't too important to be interrupted. Why? Because he had time for people. That's why he came. He he had time for people that had nothing to offer him. I mean, that's children, aren't they, in so many ways? You help a child, you teach a child, what can you expect back? You hope for a smile, maybe a thank you. But you're not going to get paid back. They're not going to return the favor. And you might say then, well, in that way, children are like a drain. They're always needing and taking any more than you can give them. Or if you're building a kingdom, you're starting a new nation, building a new career, you're starting a new business, would you have time for kids? Even your own kids, let alone someone else's. Well, Jesus did. Why? Because what did he see in these kids? He saw souls, eternal souls. That's what he saw, and that's what he came for. And so indignantly, infuriated, Jesus rushes out in the scene and he gives the rebuke now. And he's not rebuking the people or the kids. He's rebuking his disciples. You've missed it, guys. What are you doing? Don't turn them away. If they want to come, don't stand in their way. And so three implications fall out of this for us. First, even as we talked about this morning, the importance of singleness that forsaking even of a marriage and a potential family for kingdom purposes, because we have a spiritual agenda, a kingdom king, a spiritual kingdom we're after. Nevertheless, children still matter to this king and his kingdom. Why? Children remain a great blessing to any family or community. Remember this, Psalm 127, verses 3 and 5. Behold, Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Or just consider, as Jesus was doing last week, as we go back to the beginning, we read this in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. See, he blessed and then he gave those commands to populate the whole world. God's blessing came upon Adam and Eve so they would fill it with children. That was the blessing of God. Children are not a drag then. They are not a financial liability. 
They are not an inconvenience. They're not an obstacle to your dreams or aspirations. They're a gift entrusted to you by God, a sign of his favor and blessing. And if you ever start thinking otherwise, trust me, you're thinking much more like the world than you are thinking, having your mind renewed by scriptural principles. Parenthood may be sobering, a great responsibility to be sure, but trust God what he says in his word. Trust him that this one or more than one is a great blessing, even if it was a surprise. It's the favor of the Lord. Second, a second implication that falls out of this is this one. This means your children, the Lord has gifted you with them, they need a dad, they need a mom who will not hinder them. But lead them, point them, and direct them to Christ and His Word. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Parents, but dads especially, this is your call. This is your responsibility. And dare I say, your negligence in this area to disciple and instruct your children in the Lord, it may prove something like, in a passive way, a hindering to your children for coming to Jesus. That is, your poor Christian example may prove a stumbling block, a hindrance to them to come to Christ. If they don't see Christ changing you, and if Christ doesn't seem real in your life, why would He ever be real in theirs? Why would they ever think to call on Him? You don't. You cannot be derelict in your duty here, dads, for the sake of your children's souls. Pray for them. Pray with them. Pour out God's word to them. And perhaps above all, live a life that doesn't merely say you trust Christ, but you live like it. A third implication of this, and this flows out of this, children's ministry in the church is worth investing in. And Paula Davidson said, amen. There it is. (laughs) Praise God. Teach the children about your great Christ. Teach him that he's inviting them to come. And you've come to call them in. To hear about a great king who loves them. Who would die for their sins and has risen from the dead. And who will never leave them or forsake them. Call them in. Jesus is calling and he's sending you to call them. Will you call with him? So when you hear calls of help needed in our children's classes... Don't just dismiss those. And if you do dismiss them, why? What's your excuse? Oh, I don't have time for that, you see. Do you have time to teach and disciple anyone else? If you don't have time to disciple anyone, then you got issues about your priorities. Or do you think, I have more significant people to teach? So kids are not that significant then. I mean, no, no. I mean, I want to study, you know, the deep things of God. Not little Bible stories. First of all, if that's what you're thinking, I don't think you've ever sat in one of our children's classes. Ever. I don't think you've ever prepared a lesson through our materials. Why? Because we teach the Bible. And we go through all of it over the span, I think it's four years. Because we teach about a glorious Christ. And where do you find him? You find him in the scripture all over it. 
And we teach through the hard stuff. Why? Because we trust God and know that his word is profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, for even children. And so let me add too, as a guy who has taught in the church a little bit, and every age group at one time or another, let me assure you, it is no small task to get across the great things of God in a way that a child can understand them. That's not easy. You have to study really, really hard. You're going to pray really, really hard. To be able to simplify, to take that great theology and the greatness of your Christ, you need to know the scriptures very well to be able to boil it down for those young hearts. But I tell you this, and here's the incentive to get into that. I tell you this, if you can teach the scripture clearly to kids, you can teach it with clarity and power to anyone with the Holy Spirit's help. So don't flatter yourself in thinking, oh, kids are not worth my time to teach. Jesus had time. I think his schedule was a little more important than yours. And actually, his schedule might be invading yours even right now this morning. He wasn't too important to teach and love some kids, to show them the most important message of all, that there's a Christ who loves them and he's calling them. Finally, let me say for some time, Christ has entrusted this church with a whole boatload of kids. We got tons of them. They're everywhere. You go down those hallways, they are literally everywhere. But understand, church, that's a stewardship we've been given. May we not be a target of Jesus' rebuke. Stop hindering them. Let the little children come to me. Church, let's teach and let's pray and let's lead them to Jesus. Now back to our text. Matthew 19, verse 14. Consider it again why it is Jesus calls these children. He says this, But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And so there's a sense where this is all about kids, of course, and another sense, it isn't exactly. That is, yes, there's this genuine call to call real children to himself. And look at verse 15. After all this, he does indeed stop and bless the children. Verse 15, he laid his hands on them and went away. And yet, back to verse 14, what is the reason, what's the rationale why he does this? Why does he receive the children? Verse 14, we find his answer. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. This is exactly like in one sense what we saw in Matthew 18. It isn't to such merely to kids, but it's those who are like children. In that way, then, you understand they are a model. Those who model their faith like children, they are the ones who to whom the kingdom belongs. That's who the kingdom's for. Those who are dependent like children, who are spiritually needy like children, those are the ones Jesus came for. Those are the ones that are called into his kingdom. And like the disciples, we get this turned around so easy, don't we? We say things like, oh, if that celebrity came to Christ, imagine the influence he'd have. Or if that politician who's a Christian got into office, oh boy, kingdom stuff would happen. But Jesus says, kingdom people, they are those like children that the world overlooks, that the world ignores. They ignore them because they think they have nothing to offer. But you understand, it's really those who have nothing. Those are the ones that are ready and primed to receive the gospel as a gift. Because the gospel, it is a gift. It's not a trade or negotiation with God. The only trade or negotiation is you come with all of your sin, 
You come with all the damnation and you say, Jesus, take that for me and I need your mercy. That's the only exchange that happens. You only bring sin to this table. What does that mean? Your worth, your significance, your riches are found in him, not you. And until you see that about yourself, you can't be part of his kingdom. And until you see that about others, you'll always be ignoring and overlooking those who are most ready to receive the gospel. Those that Christ is calling. So how about you? Are you hindering anyone from coming to Christ? Are you presenting a proud Christianity where your life and what you believe don't match? Or are you not willing to admit your wrongs? Are you not willing to show that you need grace? Do you present a gospel, again, for the proud? It's for those that have it all together, that have this world wired. Or are you a humble, dependent person who's received a $6 billion forgiveness, so to speak? And so you forgive and you are merciful. You confess your sins and you show grace to others. In other words, are you willing to humble yourself like a child to be seen as little and insignificant that you really need God or not? Because that kind of humility that a child has, that's something we can emulate. That's a childlike dependence that commends Christ, not you. And that's an attitude that reminds all of us that he is the one worth living for with a single-minded devotion. Let's pray by his help. We can do that. Let's pray together. Indeed, Lord Jesus, we have no hope in ourselves, and so we confess our hope is only in you. We confess that we are sinners. Forgive us for our selfishness. Forgive us for our pride. Even at one time, we'd humbled ourselves before you. We started to think, oh, I got this. May we have eyes that see others like you do, that even see ourselves, which means we see our sin, but we see that you're a greater Savior. May we have eyes that see to eternity, that see the value of souls, again, like you do. We have eyes to fixed and riveted on you, our great groom, that that would be our hope. For if that would govern us, we would have joy even through trial, and we would have a hope even in dark days. Power us. Guide us by this hope, we pray. Amen.